Amen. Well, good morning. Well, it's good to see you. And uh, it's good to be led in worship. It's good to be together as a family and sing to the Lord. It's good to be able to open a copy of God's Word and see what He has for us this morning. So if you'll open up to 2 Kings chapter 1 or page 421 on that pew Bible in front of you, the first chapter of 2 Kings, you could just open to the middle of the Psalms and go left, you'll come to 2 Kings. So we're in our ninth week of uh, studying through the life of Elijah, and what we've been trying to do is not just, um, not just read and not just understand the words that God gives us about Elijah's life, but to get inside of his head, to get into his skin and walk with him and experience with him as God is revealing himself to Elijah and at the same time revealing himself to us. And so as I was away last week, I was so uh, grateful, first of all, just to be able to spend some time meditating on uh, these last couple of weeks as we will finish this series up next week, um, just enjoying God's Word and uh, really just the things that He's been speaking to me through this. And also, uh, man, what a message last week. I tell you, it was lion-hearted faith. It's good. Very, very good. And if you were not here, if you were out for the holiday weekend, you should go on the website, download the podcast, and listen to last week's message. And while I'm talking about that, if you weren't here Wednesday night, you need to be here tonight because there's another prophetic word coming your way this evening. So, 2 Kings chapter 1, let's pray and ask God's blessing on this time. Father, we humbly bow before you, Lord. This is your word. It's inerrant. It's perfect. It's our greatest earthly treasure. We thank you for it. We know that you wrote it for us, that it's relevant to our lives today. And we thank you for this day that we get to look into this word. We thank you for this place that we get to call our home. We thank you, Lord, for those who serve our children right now. Lord, as we're in here, we thank you for the work that goes into discipling the generation to come. We thank you, Father, for those who you are beginning to work in their lives who will one day soon be a part of Harbor City Church. We thank you for those that you've brought here to be with us today, maybe for the first time. We thank you for what you have in store for them. God, we thank you that every time we come to this place and gather together around your word, that there's nothing that you can't do. And so we come with a spirit of anticipation that by the power of your spirit, you may work in us greatly today. So we pray for ears to hear, hearts to receive, that you might be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're just going to have a talk this morning, okay? I like the Bible. Is that new news to you? I love the Bible. So not only have I given my life to reading and studying and understanding and teaching the Scripture. But I also like, I like the places in Scripture that seem like they're not saying anything. I like those places. I like the places that everybody else just goes past. I like those places. I like all the places, but I really like those places. That's kind of the place where we are this morning. We're in a place that no one pays any attention to. If anybody was preaching through the life of Elijah, they'd just go right past this and go on to next week. But these are the things that just excite me about the Scripture and make my heart just get so thrilled about how God is just revealing things to us through His Word. And so let's think for a minute about the Scripture. When you read the Bible... What is the Bible telling us, essentially? I mean, it's telling us a multitude of things, but from 10,000 feet up looking down, 
essentially what the scripture is doing is telling us about God. God is revealing himself to us through the scripture. Amen? And as he is doing so, he is using a story to do that. He's telling a story, this redemptive story. He's telling us about himself through the narrative of a story. And when we begin to read the Bible, unless we're just so uh, enculturated or so just uh, jaded by the Scripture, but if, if you come to the Scripture with, with just this brand new anticipation of what is all this about, and you start reading the Bible, it's not going to take you long to start realizing some things. Things that are different than what maybe you would think or what you've been told or what the people around you have experienced or whatever the case may be. Different in that, well, first of all, it doesn't take long to figure out the Christian life is utterly disruptive. It's more like a revolution than it is anything else. And that's not normally, I think, the way people in the Bible Belt approach the Scripture. And so I want to give us two, just, just two overarching principles to just sort of frame everything we're going to talk about that come from the Scripture, and then I'll discuss them, okay? Here's some two things that we would take away from the Scripture. Number one, God is not joining our life. We're joining His. Boy, do we need to get this. God is not joining our life. We are joining His. And so what we need to do, if we're going to discern and understand what's about to happen on this roller coaster we've just strapped ourselves into, is we need to know some things about His life. And secondly... God seems to do everything the hard way. I mean, the hardest way imaginable a lot of times. Now, let's say we were reading the Scripture with new eyes. And we open up and start reading through Genesis. We get through the creation narrative. We come to God's encounter with Abraham. We are introduced to this man, Abraham. God wants to, he wants to create a people through Abraham, right? That's his desire. So, now, now remember what you just read, okay? Just stop thinking about all the years you've been in Sunday school. Just pretend like it's brand new. You just read the creation narrative. You just read about a God who just speaks things and they're there. There's nothing. He speaks and they're there. This God wants to create a people through this man, Abraham. So wouldn't it make sense to you that what he would do is say, Now, Abraham, I'm going to create a people for you. Now, close your eyes. One, two, three. Poof. And there they are. Right? I mean, we know he can do it. He just did it. So that would be the sensible thing to think, but that's not what God does. God chooses Abraham, who's old. He's a pain in the neck. I wouldn't have chose Abraham. Who would choose him? He's really old. We're going to start a people with this really old man. I'm telling you, he does everything the hard way. Do you not see that? He's a little cantankerous, tends to lie a little bit. His wife's sort of out there. It's a problem. He picks Abraham. Now, let's say, let's say you were God for a second, as scary as that is. Let's, let's just say you were God, okay? Come on, let's move on through this narrative. Let, so you're God. The people that you went all the hardest way possible to create through Abraham, these people are in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. And you've decided that it's time to get them out of bondage. Maybe, you know, it's been long enough. They've learned their lesson, whatever. You're God. You've decided it's time to get them out of bondage, okay? Enough, enough of this in Egypt, right? So how would you get them out of Egypt? I mean, 
wouldn't you, if you were God, just say, all right, well, enough's enough. So, I mean, what I would do, because I tend to try to take the shortest distance between two points whenever possible. What I would do is I would just, you know, wave my pinky finger and then all the Egyptians would just drop dead right on the spot. And then listen, the people that I want to set free would be in their land because now that land would be theirs and no one would even have to move. Boom, in one swoop, I just negated all the wandering, all the exodus, all the drama, all the problem solved right there. But I mean, most of half the Egyptians died in the process anyway, right? So what's the other half? Let's just kill them all. Stay right there. Everything's done. But not God. God raises up Moses, goes through all this. Now, imagine you're God. Would you, would you fool around with Pharaoh and all that and send Moses, who's another head case, you know, to say he's got a bad temper would be the understatement of the century. I mean, if Moses were alive today, he'd probably be on death row. I mean, the guy had a problem. So he chooses Moses, sends him to Pharaoh. He's got all the power in the universe. And they go through all this rigmarole, rigmarole, rigmarole. Then finally, you know, they, you know the story, cross the Red Sea, all this drama. And then wandering for 40 years. What, what in the world is going on here? Do you think God's trying to... He's trying to teach us something. Just keep reading. It doesn't matter what book you're in. It doesn't matter what page you're on. Just pick a, pick a spot. And what you're going to find is that if you are really thinking about what you're reading, God's doing the opposite of what you would do. The last thing you'd think of. It seems like the hardest possible way to do everything. So here's what would dawn on you, I would hope. It would dawn on you at some point, hmm, well, why is God doing things this way? It must be that to him the journey is more important than the destination, right? Yeah, it must be. The journey is more important than the destination, so... How do we think about the journey? We don't have any concept of this in our culture. We're obsessed with the destination. Wherever we're going, all we care about is how fast and conveniently we can get there. Because it's all about where we're going. It's never about getting there. But God is the opposite. Here's a way I would put it on your listening guide. It's not about where we go it, as much as it is about how we grow along the way. That's, that's the way God sees it. Now understand, I'm not talking about your eternal destination. I'm talking about life on earth. The Bible is depicting, for the most part, life on earth and how we got to where we are and what He's like. And it and when you think about it, there's things that we know intrinsically, intuitively that are true about Christianity, but practically we don't ever translate that into our experience. Like, for example, well, it wouldn't make any sense that we would become a Christian and everything would, that we'd stay the same. That wouldn't make any sense. But do we really understand that Everything that grows changes. You can't, you can't grow without changing. We want to grow, but we hate to change. But it doesn't work like that. You can't, you can't grow without changing. Now, I'm just simply setting the stage because Elijah's taught us all these things. I want you to think about all the things that we've seen over the past two months as we've walked on this journey with Elijah. I mean, when we're introduced to him in the first place, he, it's clear that the thrust, the, the destination is crystal clear. 
The destination is, here's the problem. The people of Israel have rebelled against God and are worshiping a false god named Baal, and God's ticked off about that. And so the destination is, we're going to fix the problem. That is crystal clear from day one. Elijah, he's got that part down. So he shows up thinking, okay, well, I'm God's man, and God's ready to do something about this wicked king Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel and all the Baal worship they've instituted. And so here I am. And so God says, you go to him and tell him it's not going to rain. We're going to show him. And so that's what he does. And we think, well, there you go. But boy, we have went on a whole bunch of twists and turns since then, haven't we? I mean, we've We've had to grow through the pain of examining the, the false expectations we have, the darkness of depression, anxiety, the frustration of not understanding or knowing what's going on around us. Now, does God need any help to get rid of Ahab or Jezebel or Baal worship or, I mean, no. How easy would it be for him to do that? But he sends Elijah. And so really what ends up happening is the whole story is about the journey. The entire thing is about the journey. It's all about how how God takes this normal average person who really only has one special characteristic, as I can tell, and that is a willing heart. The only thing, because the Bible says that Elijah's a man just like us, the only thing I can tell that he has that makes him special and usable is he has a willing heart. And God takes this normal, average, everyday man and makes him unbelievably great. And if you go back and you reread the entire journey that we've been on, You're going to find out that the way God does this, the way God makes him into this great man, is almost exclusively through using difficult, painful circumstances in his life. And all of those painful circumstances are to show Elijah, they're not to make him tougher or stronger, no, They're to show Elijah who God really is. That's what he wants you to know this morning. That's what he wants me to know. And here's the thing. When Elijah comes on the scene, you know what's clear? Is that he doesn't think he needs to change. He doesn't know he needs to change. He doesn't. He, I mean, he's a prophet. He's ready to go. Tell me what to say and I'll say it. He has no idea what's in store for him. Just like me and just like you. He thought this was just going to be a simple story about how God gets rid of the worship of a false God in Israel. So let's look at 2 Kings chapter 1 and let's read. Let's pick up the story. 2 Kings chapter 1. Moab... You know, the people of Ruth, the Moabites, rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. So Ahab is dead. Now, by the way, you go back and read, the dogs licked up his blood just exactly the way it was prophesied down to the smallest, most minute detail. Ahab's dead. Verse 2. So Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured So he sent messengers and said to them, Go and inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. Now, if if you're thinking, wait a minute, what's going on? Just look over at the previous page. Look at the very end of 1 Kings 22. Look at how 1 Kings ends. The very last couple of verses, verse 51 In case you're wondering, well, who's Ahaziah? Well, the Bible says 
Verse 51, Ahaziah was the son of Ahab, and he became king over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, who reigned two years over Israel. So the nation of Israel split into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah, and Ahaziah, the son of the eldest son of Ahab, is now the king. Look at verse 52, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of uh, Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who had made Israel sin. For he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. So you see that not much has changed. So the new king, Ahaziah, falls through the lattice of the upper room of his palace, and he's injured. Now, apparently, this brush with death has created this injury in him that he's not healing from, so he gets a little rattled. He's, he's realizing he's not recovering, so he becomes a little frightful about what the future holds. And so he calls some folks together, just like he was taught to do by his mom and dad, and sends them to seek wisdom and advice from a false god because that's what he's seen practiced all of his life. Ekron, the god of Ekron, Beelzebub, which the literal translation of that would be Lord of the Flies, believe it or not. So that's a whole other sermon for another day. But anyhow, Ekron would be a neighboring Philistine uh, city where they would travel to find... Uh, information. If anytime you see Ekron uh, in the Old Testament, you'll see it as a place of divination and sorcery and so on and so forth. So all that would make perfect sense. Okay, back to 2 Kings 1. Look at verse 3. So they're going to seek wisdom from Beelzebub. And verse 3 says, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. <laughs> we don't know where Elijah was. I can only speculate as to what he was doing. The word of the Lord comes to him. He pops up. He goes to the messengers. He meets them. He says, hey, is the reason you're going to seek wisdom from the God of Ekron because there is no God in Israel? He's not expecting an answer. doesn't even give him a chance to answer and says, and by the way, go back and tell the king that he's never getting out of the bed he's in. He's going to die there. Now, Ahaziah. He's a wonderful kid, grew up in a wonderful, loving home. <laughs> I mean, whoo. So just exactly like his father Ahab, all he seems to care about is himself. All he wants to know is the future. And he really doesn't care anything about the source or the power which he's inquiring. He just wants information that's going to serve his needs. Now... The angel of the Lord, which is a Christophany, means the Lord Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, intercepts and says to Elijah, go tell him. The question you first would ask yourself is why? I mean, at this point, does it really matter? I mean, let him go. What's the harm? I mean, they're going to go to Ekron, and what are they going to do? Go in this temple, and there's going to be some dumb little thing carved out of wood or made out of stone or some little statue out of precious metal, the Lord of the Flies, and they're going to ask it to predict the future. Well, the problem is, is that in Scripture, it never really matters what the idol's made of. That's not the problem. The problem is what the idol represents. So a couple of just things about idols and idolatry. Paul says to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, well, now what am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? I mean, that's a good question. 
Verse 20, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So it is a big deal. Because what Paul's saying is, is that when you start worshiping that little stone, it may be a piece of stone, but you're gaining access into the demonic realm, and that's not something you ought to be messing around with. Furthermore, the Scripture says in Psalms 115 about idolatry and idols, uh, that the idols are silver and gold. They're the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have, uh, they, get, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they can't handle anything. They have feet, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. You see, so what's the point? But here's the point, verse 8. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. So it is a big deal. And here's why it's a big deal. Because the Bible says about idols, you become. You become like the treasure that you seek. You become like the treasure that you seek. That you got to be careful about what you're placing your faith in, what you're putting your hope in, that it matters. It may just be a piece of rock, or it may just be a job, or it may just be your 401k, or it may just be your insurance policy, or it may just be your intellect, or it may just be whatever it may be. You better be careful. You better be careful. Because an idol that's worshipped is going to determine what you become. So here's what it tells us about Ahaziah. It tells us about his soul and his condition. It tells us that he's just like his parents. So God, remarkably, doesn't kill him or eradicate him. He sends the prophet to intervene. Now, based on what we've already talked about this morning, I think you already get the feeling that, well, that's not the end of the story. I mean, it's not just going to be that simple, is it? Oh, no. Mm -mm. We're going to go the hard way around it. So look at verse 5. So when the messengers returned back to the king, they said, he said to them, well, why have you come back? And they said to him, well, a man came up to meet us and said to us, go and return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, it is, because, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending us to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So then the king says to them, Now what kind of man was this that came up to meet you and said these words? And they said, Well, he was a harried guy. A hairy dude wearing a belt. Now, last week, me and my family were at the beach. I might have seen Elijah at the beach. There was a couple times I thought, that could be Elijah right there. But I didn't linger long. I could only take just a brief millisecond of that. So the hairy guy, now, it's just the way my mind works. I, I'm like, so does he have like a hairy shirt on and a belt? Or is there just no shirt and a belt? Either way, it's weird, but I just wonder. And you know what the king says? Oh, it's Elijah. He knows exactly who it is. Hmm. So now I wonder what the king's going to do. Remember, he's been taught by two of the best. So he immediately does just what his parents have done in the past. Draw the weapon of intimidation and hope to get the same result that they got. You see, they were hoping that Elijah would run away like he did when Jezebel threatened him. And hide in the wilderness and leave him alone. Look at verse 9. So the king sends a captain of 50 with his 50 men. So he went up to Elijah and there he was sitting on top of a hill. And he spoke to him, man of God... 
the king has said, come down. So Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. So then the king sent to him another captain of 50 men. Now, how would you like to be the second guy? (laughs) I don't know how long it took because they all got toasted. So it's not like they were spared one to go home and tell the king. So word gets back to the king. Uh, You know them 51 guys you sent to Elijah? Well, he nuked them. It didn't go good. So, you know, you get the call. Hey, get your men and you go down to Elijah. Uh, that's, That's a bad day. So this second guy goes down. And he goes up and says, man of God, end of verse 11, thus says the king, come down quickly. Verse 12, so Elijah answered him and said, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and the 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and the 50 men. So now we have 102 toasted soldiers. Verse 13, I mean, this guy is a real knucklehead, this king. Again, He sends a third captain. Now, at this point, you know, I may go AWOL. I don't know. But this captain is like, okay. So he sends a third captain and his 50 men. And the third captain and his 50 men went up. and And he comes and falls on his knees before Elijah and pleaded with him and said, this guy's smart. Man of God. I don't. I'm not gonna. Don't please don't say that if I'm a man of God thing. I'm just gonna start out by calling you a man of God. Okay. Apparently there were some witnesses that went back and told him exactly what happened. So he had been thinking about this. So he walks up and the first thing he says is, "Man of God, I come in peace." He kneels down. Man of God, please let me let my my life and the life of my fifty servants be precious in your sight. Verse fourteen. Look, fire has come down. We got it from heaven and burned up the first two captains in their, in their 50s. But let my life now be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord intervenes and says to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah gets up and he went down to, to him and went with him to the king. Verse 16, then he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have, so now Elijah is speaking to the king, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the king of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Hmm. So the king died. According to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. That's it. He died. Because he had no son, Jehoram became king in his place, which would have been his younger brother. In the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Now the rest of the acts of the king, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles and the kings of Israel? Hmm. End of story. Not really, but end of this part of the story. Now let's think for a second. God's telling us about himself. We can learn some things from Ahaziah. What can we learn about God from this strange and obscure passage of events? Well, a few things. First of all, it's clear to me that God is a God of grace. God's a God of grace. That just jumps off the page. Now, think about how tragic it is that the same mentality that Ahaziah has abounds all around us today. God is continually sending warning after warning after warning to people, but people give him no attention, no respect. They just keep going on. They explain away all the 
the, uh, the, the, the grace of God coming into their life to get their attention. They just explain that away as just mere happenstance or, you know, it's just sort of, it has no meaning whatsoever. But God wants us to know He's a God of grace for a number, of, number one, well, this captain comes and just kneels down and he's spared. There's no previous acknowledgement or anything. He's just like the, the previous two captains that were, are dead and God lets him live. Grace. Elijah's sent to intercept Ahaziah's message. In the first place, the question, well, why? Why is God, why does God care whether this wicked, evil king seeks guidance from, I mean, he, he worships Baal on a regular basis anyway. Why would God do this? And here's the answer. You know what it is? God loves wicked people. He loves wicked people. He loves Ahaziah. It's easy for us to sit in here and read this story and get our heart bent against Ahaziah. But let me tell you something. This is screaming off the page. God loves wicked people. The people that you and me don't want to be around, that we think are too evil, too bad, too far gone, too demented, perverted, whatever it is. God loves them. He loves them. And you know what he does to this evil, wicked king? He sends a prophet to intercept him, to give him an opportunity, just like he did to his father. a God of grace. Secondly, he's a God of love. I mean, don't you see that this, what, what is going on here? Clearly, God, why does God have issue with this at all? Why is it that there is a place in all of our hearts that wants to just say to someone who just keeps doing the wrong thing, gone? Go ahead. You want to just keep destroying your life? Keep destroying your life. In other words, we just, we just wore out with them. God's not like that. Here's the nation of Israel that's turned their back on God. They're worshiping Baal. And you know what God is? He's jealous. He's jealous. He doesn't want them worshiping Baal. He wants them worshiping him. He's not like you and me that would go, forget it. If you don't want me, I don't want you. Mm -mm. Come on, Christian. He's jealous of wicked people worshiping a pagan God. Because he loves. He wants their undivided affection. And that's why he's jealous. Otherwise, he wouldn't have fool with them at all. You know why? Because the opposite of love is not hate, right? It's indifference. So if God didn't love him, he'd just go, go ahead, do whatever you want to do. But he's jealous because he loves him. Number three, he's a God of grace. He's a God of love. He's a God of his word. He's a God of his word. Isaiah 40 says the grass, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. That you see there's two things that are happening at the same exact time that perfectly work in union. They don't, they don't go against each other. They work perfectly together. On one hand, God's not willing that anyone would perish. But on the other hand, He's not going to allow any sin ever to go unpunished. And Scripture doesn't try to camouflage that or hide that. or It just comes right out and says, well, here's how God thinks. And if you don't understand that, that's your problem. That's not God's problem. Exodus 20. I think this is perfect because of who we're talking about. Ahaziah, look at his heritage. And look at what Exodus 20 says. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, God says, any likeness or anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or 
that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Listen. Me and a whole bunch of you in this room are living proof that Jesus Christ breaks the power of generational sin. That's right. And let me tell you something. Just because Ahaziah grew up with the most wicked parents a person could ever have, God still is, is coming in and saying, listen, you don't have to. You don't have to suffer. If you stop hating me and start loving me, I'll show mercy to you. And that curse will be broken. But if you hate me like your parents did, the iniquities on them will come on you. And it will just keep on going as long as people hate me. But what about Elijah? Isn't all this about Elijah? So, you know what I've been doing for the last probably 12, 13 days? I've been thinking about 11 words. Just 11. One little phrase in this whole story that I just can't get over. I can't get out of my head. I can't stop thinking about it. I just keep over and over and over and over thinking about these 11 words. Look back, beginning in verse 3, and let's see what's going on with Elijah. Look at verse 3. So the angel of the Lord comes to Elijah the Tishbite and says, Arise and go meet the messengers of the king and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you go to inquire of this Beelzebub? King of God of Ekron, now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departs. Verse 9. Then the king sent the first captain and his 50 men, and he went up to him, and there he was sitting on the top of a hill, and he spoke to him. And all I keep thinking about, and there he was, sitting on the top of a hill. And there he was, sitting on the top of a hill. You see, because I've been trying to live his life for the last two months. I've been trying to think like he thinks and feel what he feels and see what he sees. And when I read that, I just kind of leaned back and I thought, and there he was, sitting on the top of a hill. Hmm. Considering all he's been through, this whole roller coaster ride, the detour of all detours. One after another, after another, after another. There he is, sitting on the top of a hill. Now, when someone sends 50 soldiers and their commander to you, it's pretty evident that they don't want to tell you how much they like you or ask you to pray for them, or, you know, you don't send 50 soldiers unless you're expecting a conflict and you want to inflict harm, right? There he is, sitting on top of a hill. Hmm. Wonder what is going on in Elijah's life. What has Elijah, what, what has created this change in him. Now remember, about 
three detours into his life, one of his major collapses comes merely at a verbal threat. No soldiers, no weapons, just a verbal threat of the possibility that the queen's going to kill you. And he goes off the deep end. Now, 50 armed soldiers come up to him. An old hairy guy with a leather belt's just sitting on top of a hill. Well, he must figure some things out. There must be some things he's learned that we really could benefit from this morning. Here's what I think they are. Here's how I think we move forward from this moment right now. I think the first thing that Elijah understands is is that we need to live life expecting detours. You notice there's no shock. There's no surprise. There's no... Now, you would say, well, how was he supposed to know that? Well, wait a minute now. Let's think about how we got here. He knows who he's dealing with. And he knows that when he deals with them, when he intercepts them, when God sends them, sends him to the palace for whatever reason, that's what triggers trouble. So he's already intercepted the messengers and specifically told them, go back and tell the king. So he knows trouble's coming. He knows there's a heightened level. He knows that we're in, you know, red alert mode. He's just sitting on top of a hill. The same guy that's run halfway across the nation, slept under a broom tree, wished he had never been born. Fifty guys show up, armor, weapons, horses. I mean, it's a big spectacle. There he is. Hair blowing in the wind. I meant this hair. You know, every good hairy guy's bald. I mean, it's got to be that way, you know what I mean? It wouldn't be right to be any other way. What if we could live our life expecting detours? How would that change the trajectory of our life? If everything that we've talked about this morning is true, what would happen if, if instead of giving all of our time, effort, and energy and trying to avoid them? I'm not saying that we want them. I'm just saying that we expect them so that we're not surprised when they come. So that when a detour comes, we're just sitting on... I'm not saying Elijah wanted I'm just saying that he wasn't rattled. He's just sitting on top of a hill. That's where I want to be the next time a detour comes into my life. I just want to be sitting on top of a hill. Just sitting there. Bible open. Hanging out with the Lord. Detour comes. Not surprised. Second thing. If we can live life expecting detours. Secondly, and this is the big one. Live life embracing detours. Now, you know what I'm talking about by a detour. I'm talking about when the rug is jerked out from under you. I'm talking about when all the predictability gets sucked out of your life. Detours, they're times that are hard. They're, they're painful. And what Elijah has learned is that they're not just to be survived. That when you get into a detour, it's not just about surviving the detour, rather they're to be embraced. That 
just a cursory, elementary reading of the Scripture would validate to us, all of us this morning, that detours are an incredibly important part of our journey and our story. They play a huge role in who we are, who we become, our spiritual nature, our our maturity, our growth, our potential, our usefulness. Every single story in the Bible would validate that. So if that's true, wouldn't we embrace it? Even though it hurts? Even though it's difficult? Why do we resist so fervently the reality that in God's economy, calamity breeds opportunity? Why are we so... Well, I mean, if it's true, if it's, there's so many hard things that are true, why don't we just surrender to that, bow to that? In His economy, calamity... Breeds opportunity. So I want to ask you a couple questions. What if Elijah would have, had, would have refused to go to Ahab in the first place and proclaim the drought? You know, when we started, the, first, the whole journey began. Just out of nowhere, Elijah the Tishbite goes before Ahab. Just like that. We don't know anything. Just boom, here he is. What if he would have said, no, I'm not doing that. That guy's a maniac. He kills people every single day. He kills people for fun. Are you going to go just, God's going to tell you to just go, you're just going to jump up and run off to some psychopath? And What if he'd have said no? What if he said yes, expecting that God was going to do certain things and then winds up out at the brook at Cherith? Remember that little episode? What if he ends up at the brook of Cherith and he becomes resentful because of his situation? I've been thinking a lot about what wonder what we would think out there at the brook. Now, here we're sitting at this brook, isolated, alone, foods being brought to us by ravens. We can handle it. But then the brook dries up. You know, about the time the drought takes full effect, the brook dries up. Now, now think about it for a second. You're sitting there. Now, isn't it true that there's something inside of you that wants to think in that moment? Now, hold on, God. Isn't the point of the drought in the first place consequences for people who are serving false pagan gods? And so here I am serving you, and I'm suffering the consequences of the drought that's meant for them. Now, if I don't know anything, I know that's not fair. That's not right. You asked me to go before Ahab, and I did that, and now here I am sitting here suffering the same, the same exact thing as all the people who are Baal worshipers. Forget you, God. I'm not serving you anymore. I'm not doing this. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't like it. I'm not comfortable. I can't see any way out of it. I don't want to hear about you. I don't want to hear about your word. But he didn't do that. So what does God do next? God sends him to a place called Zarephath. Remember that? Do you remember what the word Zarephath means? It means furnace. Hello? You going on vacation to Furnaceville? Not only does he send him to 
a place of refining in the furnace. But on top of that, he says, now when you get there, first you're going to walk your tired, thirsty self all the way across the desert. Then when you get there, where you've had all the time to think about how unjust this is and how unfair this is and how not right this is, then when you get there, there's going to be a widow there. She's a destitute widow. She got nothing. She's just about to starve to death. That's who you're going to hang out with. You're going to depend on a destitute widow for the next unforeseeable length of months until the three-year drought's over. You're going to live there. I'm talking about day after day after day. And, by the way, the Furnaceville is located in the hometown of Jezebel where her dad happens to be the king, where everybody there wants to kill you. Really? Who does this? If this isn't the hard way, I don't know what is. What if he just said, forget it? Forget it, God, I quit. See, not only is God teaching Elijah to trust in him, but look at how he's doing that. It's, it's trusting in him in spite of his circumstances. Listen, things are perpetually getting worse, not better. Dear God, help us to hear this morning, things are not getting better. They're getting worse. So can we please stop panicking all the time? They're not getting better. They're getting worse. They're not getting better. They're getting worse. If ever there's a message that we need to hear, things are not getting better. They're getting worse. It's okay. God hasn't lost control of anything. So Ahab finally dies. Whew. Okay. Relief is on its way. Oh, no, it's not. No. Mm -mm. God allows his son to become king. Really? Huh. When it comes to expecting and embracing detours, here's what we have to understand. God builds faith in us less by fixing circumstances and more by the furnace of circumstances. We have got to stop. We got to stop worshiping this false God of fix my circumstances. Can he fix them? Sure he can. Will he fix them? I don't know. But is that the most important thing? Because based on what I'm seeing in Scripture, it looks to me like it's those circumstances that seem to be the most important thing. It's those things that are making Elijah into the person he needs to be. So, I wonder why the Bible says, think, think with me for a second. Of all the people in the Old Testament, of all the prophets, of all the, the great men of God, why does the Bible choose Elijah to tell us in the New Testament that he's a man with a nature just like ours in James chapter 5? Why? Why, why Elijah? Do you think that's just a random happenstance? Or do you think that God's trying to clue us into something? He didn't say that about Moses. He didn't say that about Abraham. He didn't say that about David. He said that about Elijah. Why does he say it about Elijah? Why does God want us to know that Elijah is just like you and just like me? Why? I wonder. 
How many people never experience the great things that God has in store for them? Simply because they refuse to embrace the detours. I wonder how many of you this morning are in the crosshairs of a very difficult season. And you can just throw your hands up and say, it's not fair. See, God wants us to know that Elijah was just like us. Why? Because he wants us to know that he can do in your life and my life the same thing he did in Elijah's. But we have to embrace the detour. You see, if he says no to go to Ahab, it's over. If he gets mad in the wilderness at Cherith, it's over. If he says forget this in Zarephath, it's over. On and on and on it goes. Greatness comes through embracing the detour. And here's the thing, we, this is what we get hung up. We want to understand the detour. Well, here's the thing, that you can understand the detour, and this is what you can understand. It's hard, and it's painful, and he didn't like it. But it's okay. God's with him. He's with him. You see, if you want to get to the place that when the bomb drops out of heaven on your life, you're sitting on a hill. You're just sitting up there. You don't like it, you don't want it, but you're not rattled. Fifty armed men surround him. He's like, mm-hmm. It doesn't say this, but it seems to me like he doesn't even look up. He just says, well, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven. In other words, either way, it doesn't matter. You know why? Because I know God now. I know him. I've been through the furnace. I know him. I'm not worried about you. So if I am, let fire fall. If I'm not, whatever. So embracing the detour is going to be our challenge. So I'm going to give you three things that fall under embracing the detour. Because, because I love you and I've thought a lot about this. And I know God loves me. And he wants me to know this. So if we can do anything this morning, can we just... Let's just give ourselves to these three things. I, I just believe with all my heart it would just literally revolutionize your whole entire Christian experience. Number one, we have to redefine good. We've got to redefine good. You see, if you and me don't redefine what's good, if we don't get us out of what's good, if we if we keep living our life based on what we think is good, that is robbing us and preventing us from experiencing the joy and the opportunity that God has for us in our circumstances. I've prayed fervently that God would redefine good in my life to be. I know that God loves me, and I know that he's with me. And so whatever it is that I'm going through, wherever I am, and whatever it feels like, or, it's okay. Because what makes life worth living is the fact that I know that God loves me, and I know that in the end I'm going to be okay. And that's what makes it good. Number two, we got to stop focusing on getting somewhere and start focusing on being someone. We got to quit. There's some wonderful discussion questions on the back of that 
with regards to these three things and that one in particular. Because I know there's some confusion and I'll help you if you'll go through those questions, understand what I'm talking about. But it's a destination theology that is ripping apart Christian lives on one end of the spectrum to the other. And it's a false gospel. And it's killing some of you. It's not about getting somewhere. You know why? Because the day you got saved, your destination is secure. You can forget that. It's over. You're there. The Bible says your citizenship is already in heaven. It's already there. So we're not trying to get somewhere. We're trying to be someone. God wants to do something in you. He loves you way too much to leave you like you are. Redefine good. Stop focusing on getting somewhere and start focusing on being someone. And number three, just know that faith is accepting whatever he gives me and a willingness not to have anything that he withholds. It's not enough to say with your mouth that he's a sovereign God. If you believe he's a sovereign God, then what you have is what you have because that's what the sovereign God determined for you to have. And every time you want something you don't have, you're expressing dissatisfaction with the sovereign God who is your father. So you can't say that he's a good father, if he can give you everything and you want things you don't have, then he's not good. Hello? Because in a minute you're going to say he's a good father. So I'm telling you now, if you don't want to lie before the Holy Spirit of God, then if he's a sovereign God and a good father who can give you whatever you want, then if you want something that you don't have, then he must not be good. So we've got to realize that faith, genuine, real, active faith, is receiving, embracing the detour, and knowing that if I needed it, he'd give it to me. If I don't have it, I don't need it. Let's stand and bow our heads.